Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen, and I'm in the full HQ studio again this week, getting this listener mailbag edition ready to air on August 29th. I'm excited to welcome a very special guest today, Fool.com contributor Danny Venna, who's joining us via Skype from San Diego, California. Hey there, Danny. Welcome to Industry Focus. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here, and uh, how's it going? I'm doing well. Uh, I know this isn't technically your first time on the podcast. Dylan had you on for the tech edition, I believe, not too long ago. But this is your first time with me uh, talking consumer and retail, and I'm very much looking forward to tackling some of these listening uh, listener questions together. Exciting business. Um, so, uh, listeners, remember that you can write to the Industry Focus team at any time, and that you'll hear back directly from one of us, the hosts. Our email is industryfocus at fool.com. And our first question comes from Tom Gaffner, and he asked early last month, what's going on with iRobot, ticker IRBT? It's a bit unsettling when the headlines are dominated by shareholder alert, law firm XYZ announces investigation into the firm. Is this an ordinary instance executed by bears or shorts or something to really be worried about? So, if you go to Yahoo Finance, for example, and scroll through the major news headlines for iRobot from the past few months or so, you'll see a lot of examples of what Tom is talking about. So, before we dive into the question, though, just a really quick look at the company. So, iRobot's a $2.5 billion market cap. Uh, You can likely guess from its name, uh, they generate revenue by building and selling robots, about $18 million of them, actually, in the past 15 years. And the company leads the consumer robotics industry, and its devices are designed to just make your to make its customers' lives easier. So, iRobot offers four major product lines, and they're all robots that can either help vacuum your floors, uh, mop them up, clear your gutters, or clean your pool. And so, overall, this seems rather harmless. But, Danny, kicking it over to you, what's with the legal scrutiny that the company's facing? Well, first of all, one of the things that investors will find after they've been doing this for a little while is that shareholder lawsuits uh, are essentially just something that comes with the territory. There is a particular type of law firm that this is their bread and butter, this is how they make their living, um, by basically exploiting a loophole in securities law. And you'll oftentimes hear these uh, law firms referred to, or these lawsuits referred to as a Milberg. And the way it got its name was based on the infamous firm of Milberg Vice, Uh, who gained notoriety back in the 70s. Uh, They would file lawsuits against companies uh, supposedly on behalf of the little guy. Um, It turns out that later on they were prosecuted for kickbacks, racketeering, bribery. So basically they were doing it to line their pockets. Um, Now the, the problem with these lawsuits is that once one of these lawsuits is filed, Really, the only one who makes any money is the attorneys involved. Um, what what you'll see is the, the companies will spend a lot of money either um, pursuing these lawsuits or settling these lawsuits. Most of the money goes to the attorneys, and the the people that are hurt are the shareholders. Um, so it, it's it's not it's not a good situation, um, damaging to the present shareholders. In fact, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has calculated that shareholder lawsuits cost companies about $39 billion every year, um, but they actually only recover about $5 billion. 
So the additional $34 billion, guess where that goes? To the lawyers. Yep. So it seems in this case, then, that it's not as alarming as an issue um, that Tom needs to be worried about. But uh, let's get specifically uh, into uh, this example with iRobot. Uh, what are the law firms here investigating then? What are they bringing up exactly? Because there has to be some basis for their investigations, no? That That's true. Um, what has happened is, is there's a, a research report that was issued by a short-selling company called Spruce Point Capital Management. Um, now, that company uh, is headed by a guy by the name of Ben Axler. And actually, that's the only person that, that works for the firm, as far as we know. Um, he made his name by uncovering fraudulent Chinese reverse mergers, um, which is essentially a Chinese company that wants to enter the U.S. stock market. And so what they'll do is they will buy up a shell company in the U.S., and then do a reverse merger so they can, you know, basically cheat their way onto the stock market. So he made his name finding those types of situations and exposing those fraudulent companies. Now, since then, once he's gotten beyond that, it's, it's a little more difficult to, uh, you know, continue in that vein. You're only going to find that many companies for a certain amount of time. So what, what happened thereafter is he started issuing short reports on companies um, for a number of different reasons. In the case of iRobot, um, he said there, there were several points. Um, the first being that um, the stock performance, the stock's up 150 some odd percent over the last year. Um, and he said that those gains are a result of the supply chain being restocked from the company, divesting its military robot division, and also the acquisition of a Japanese distributor. Now, there's not necessarily a problem with any of those things. Um, and what he's saying is the stock has run too far, too fast. There's going to be a reversion to the mean. They're not going to be able to keep up with those. Once it comes time for them to report earnings in the future, it's going to be difficult to meet those comps. And as a result of that, the stock is going to fall. Yeah, it seems odd to me. Uh, you know what you mentioned in terms of this basis for some of these investigations in this report, because you know that that is an issue that will come up for plenty of stocks on the market. You know things like hype do play into uh, the, some of these bullish runs that we see for these companies. And overall, uh, you know, iRobot's followed quite closely here at the Fool, um, and. Some of the things that you mentioned, uh, I understand the risk of it having flown potentially too high, but you know, there's nothing fraudulent here so far that we at all that we can see. That that's right, and they didn't make any type of accusations. They merely said that you know because of these issues. Um, he also pointed out that competition from uh, Shark Ninja, which is a competing vacuum company that they could potentially release um, a product to compete with the iRobot. Um, Shark Ninja released a product that competed in stole market share from the Dyson vacuum people. Um, also said that uh, companies that have acquired their related party distributors have oftentimes run into issues that weren't apparent you know, when they made the decision to do that. And so they're saying there's potential for these types of problems, not necessarily saying that there is any issue, but that there could be. Sure. 
And uh, I understand that you have some background here uh, for Spruce Point Capital in terms of some of these, some other uh, instances where they've written reports and kind of tried to leverage, uh, I guess, some of the res- the market response in that. Um, could you share that with the listeners? I'd be happy to. Let me first start by saying that you know anybody who wants to, all of this information is publicly available. I went to Spruce Point Capital's website. I looked at the number of companies that they have written short reports on going back about two years. I eliminated the ones that were done most recently just because whatever their thesis was didn't really have hasn't had a chance to play out yet. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'm going to look at my figures here for just a second. So over the over the last two years, eliminating the reports from the last six months, the stock performance for the companies that were the subject of these reports, four of the 10 did significantly better than the market. Three of them had single digit percentage price moves either up or down, which is they were essentially unchanged sure. or even with the market. Mm hmm and three of them that were down significantly. So what that shows is that out of these 10 reports that I reviewed, Spruce Point Capital was right about 30% of the time. And if you take all 10 of those companies and compare the performance from the time they issued to the report until the current day, and you compare that to the S&P 500 over the same time frame, the differences in total is less than 2% overall. So not really that much there as the reports and the the legal response would would seem to indicate. Right. So, you know, it's one of those things that that shareholders have to be able to and ready to deal with. These things happen. There are some companies that, you know, they'll they'll, they will be the target of these types of short sellers. And how they work is they'll do a report that wait until the stock runs up or till there's an issue. And then they will release this research report after they've sold the stock short. Then the stock will fall, and they'll cover that short, and then they'll pocket all the money. Sure. Uh, That's really helpful background, and uh, I think it is a very good reminder in this instance to kind of be wary of this kind of research. And what comes down to it, even some of the most well-known investors that we follow and and really respect here at the Molly Fool, think even like a Warren Buffett, they will have their own reasons for calling out companies, good or bad. So you have to keep their motivations in mind and make sure you perform your own due diligence before taking any kind of action. and I know, Danny, that you've done some additional research for iRobot specifically in this case. Just real quick, you know, what is your take then? Uh, you know, they make these consumer-focused um, robots. You know, what's your take on the company's outlook? Well, you know, there, there's a few. I, I, I'm an accountant by trade, so I prefer to think in terms of metrics. And if you look at, for instance, the recent uh, sales on Amazon Prime Day doubled year over year from the prior. Uh, Amazon Prime Day. Um, in their most recent quarter, revenue was up 45% year over year. They beat guidance for both top and bottom line for the year. Um, and the stock jumped to an all-time high. So that that's probably you know part of what made it a target. Um, what's exciting about the company is that their robot, the Roomba, uh, the most recent model, uses something called spatial awareness, mm-hmm. uh, which basically gives the robot the 
ability to determine where it is in a in a confined space. Now, what they're doing is they're using this technology to map the room that the iRobot is in, that the Roomba is in, and from that, um, they're pursuing an entry into the smart home market. Now, the smart home market was $10 billion in 2016, and it's projected to increase about 60% this year alone. So it's a hot market, and they're looking to you know, get into that market. They, what they're doing is they're asking uh, Roomba owners if they will opt into uh, the program to um, basically to, to, to map their home and then they're, you know, using that information to hopefully help consumers um, better move into the smart home products that are out there. Yeah, with that information, you know, the idea is it can help homeowners and then also uh, the the creators of smart home technology kind of get the most out of the experience convenience that smart home tech can offer. And management's really, really focused at iRobot on this. Keep in mind this, you know, this is a consumer products company in terms of, you know, the, what they sell, how they generate their revenue. But they hold dozens of patents. They spend, I think, $100 million every year on research and development. So they're very focused on the tech behind this. I think that is ultimately with some of the smart home, with the mapping and the, the opportunities that branch out of that. Uh, you know the main thing to watch for this company going forward. Um, but let's move on to our next question, and it's one from Will in Chicago. So he wanted to know uh, what is the business model and future for esports, especially since Amazon owns Twitch. And the last time we covered esports was at the beginning of the year, and there have been some pretty big developments, including new partnerships with professional sports leagues, some licensing deals, and other investments from uh, media companies and game publishers. But Danny, when we were chatting earlier this week, uh, you had some really impressive updates that you shared with me that kind of put the scale of the esports industry in perspective. Um, can you give uh, Fools Listening some of the bigger highlights? Sure. So this is just, you know, I, I found some of these metrics to be, you know, pretty astonishing. I, I've only been following esports for a short time. Um, but but here, here are a few bullet points to kind of, you know, whet your interest. Uh, the largest pool, prize pool ever for esports is for Dota 2. Dota is a defense of the ancients for the uninitiated. And that prize pool for players was over $20 million. The top winner of that competition was in 2015, uh, Peter PPD Dagger, won more than $2 million himself in prize money. Um, the Esports League, which was the largest esports company that was broadcasting on Twitch at the time, was recently acquired by a company called Modern Times Group for $87 million. Uh, you currently, there are about 300 million people that tune into esports, and that number is expected to grow to over 500 million by the year 2020. Um, and then, you know, to give you a couple more specifics, so the League of Legends World Championships that was held in uh, Berlin's Mercedes-Benz Arena, tickets to that event sold out in three minutes. Wow. Three minutes. Yeah, that is that is crazy. And uh, uh, elsewhere... It was a Springsteen concert. <laughs> elsewhere in this industry, you have a lot of... Uh, 
you will have a lot of players from traditional sports like ESPN, uh, professional sports teams buying in. I think that adds a lot of legitimacy to this opportunity as well. Just this week, uh, there was the creation of the Madden NFL Club Championship, and that's through a partnership between Electronic Arts, which is a huge video game publisher, and the NFL. So players basically will sign up to compete online, and eventually the top 32 players will end up each representing an actual NFL uh, pro team, and they'll go, uh, they'll compete against each other in the finals, and those finals will actually be coordinated with the actual NFL Pro Bowl and Super Bowl games, and the prize money is supposed to amount to several hundred thousand dollars. And so, you know, you've given a pretty good, uh, I guess, context and background in terms of the scale for the esports business. And uh, a word that you use to describe it and how it's similar to traditional esports, when we were talking about uh, the show previously, you used the word ecosystem and how the different stakeholders kind of come in. And in this case, you have game publishers, you have console manufacturers, broadcasters, players. Um, Will called out Twitch specifically in his question. And Amazon spent $1 billion acquiring. Uh, Twitch three years ago. What is the story there? You know, with Twitch, they will charge users a monthly fee um, to be able to stream on that uh, on the on their platform. And let's see here. Looks like Twitch is a wholly owned subsidiary of Amazon. It's the leading video game streaming site for gamers. Mm-hmm. Currently has about 10 million daily active users. Um, now, users on that platform will watch about 106 minutes of video per day. Now, you know, just to give you a comparison, if you look at, say, YouTube, uh, YouTube is about an hour of video per day that users watch. So this far exceeds the, you know, the, the usage that, that YouTube enjoys, and YouTube is one of the world leaders. Yeah, they're known for their engagement. Absolutely. So now Amazon also offers, you know, through Twitch, offers tools for developers so that they can include um, game broadcasting services into their apps. So I think this is only going to get bigger from here. Um, yep. I think currently Amazon will charge... I believe the fee is ten dollars a month. Okay. I, I take that. I'm sorry, five dollars a month. They'll charge five dollars a month for uh, these streamers, and then for the people that are people that are watching it, will pay the five dollars a month, and then the people that are actually streaming that are playing the games, um, they'll collect about half of that. Sure. Uh, I think what's really special with with the Twitch platform. Um, is if is the potential here for two-way interaction, and that means between the you know the players who are uh, you know broadcasting their gameplay, and then also the viewers. You know, I know that there are plenty of athletes out there, tennis players, golf uh, golfers, basketball players, who probably love to play the sport and love watching the professionals do it the best in the world. But now imagine kind of being able to connect directly with the players in this case who are the potentially the best in the world. And I think an example uh, in Twitter is how you can see how powerful it can be to have that connection between you know the viewers and uh, the, essentially the content creators here. But other than Twitch, um, there are also some traditional media companies that are taking the plunge essentially with esports. And that includes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, ESPN, NBC, TBS, and others. So if you read about what industry insiders have to say about the esports opportunity, a lot of them 
will mention uh, a point in the future, essentially, where esports eventually reaches mainstream audiences, and then the revenue revenue potential that comes with that. But I actually think we're already uh, at the point where we're talking about millions of viewers in the U.S. I, you mentioned something like 300, uh, growing to 500 million viewers worldwide, and among right. younger consumers, uh, uh, esports viewers is already the viewer base is already enough to rival established sports like hockey and baseball. So I think it's only natural that cable networks want to test the water to find out what the advertising potential and revenue potential is for this kind of programming. They'll just ultimately, though, have to compete with the likes of Twitch and YouTube and other digital alternatives for it. And the thing is, Hollywood right now is kind of squaring off against tech companies like Netflix and Amazon as well for content and talent. And you know, these Silicon Valley companies, these tech companies have very deep wallets um, and they're willing to invest a lot to build out that viewership, to build up the market share in the industry. Um, but let's talk about the business model a little bit for the content creators in this industry, the game publishers on the game publishing side. Um, you know, how are they kind of monetizing and leveraging these huge audiences? Well, there's a couple of different ways, and, and you know, the easiest way to think about this is comparing it to professional sports. Um, professional sports team will make their money by selling media rights, advertising. Um, players will have sponsorships from major corporations. You've got ticket sales, and then you know, of course, the game publishers themselves. So what's happening with the game publishers is that first of all, they're going to make money by not only collecting those the fees for these. Uh, channels to be able to use their games. Um, but then also, as the games become more popular, they get out there, they're in the limelight. People say, wow, I've been meaning to pick up this game and I haven't. So they're going to sell more games. But then in those games, there's also, and this is where some of the big money is, microtransactions, yep. um, virtual currency, downloadable add-on content where you can you know, buy more weapons or buy specialized items within the game. Um, so game publishers make a lot of money doing that. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't think it's possible to overstate how important it is now for game publishers to essentially maximize what is the shelf life for their most popular titles. You know, in the past it used to be that you know the main revenue stream for these companies was the initial sale of a game. So it was great to have a blowout first week or first month where you're setting a record for a number of sales, but and you know the uh, even now the more copies of your title um, that you can sell the better, but now you also want as many players as possible um, playing and being engaged because there's so much money to be made with those in-game purchases and downloadable content uh, that you mentioned. And you know these add-ons, uh, like weapons, special items, maybe new levels or gameplay modes, um, they amount to billions of dollars. So for, for Activision Blizzard, for example, the company reported uh, a record $3.8 billion of in-game purchases in 2016. And that doubles their tally from 2015 in just one year. And digital revenue now makes up the majority of the top line for companies like Activision, Electronic Arts, and most other competitors in this industry. So, if esports can essentially help these games reach uh, wider audiences, recruit new players, then the publishers will naturally want to grow this opportunity as much as possible. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of the publishers establish specific um, teams and segments within their their corporate structure that are focused on the esports opportunity. Um, so, Will, I think we've covered most of the business model for esports. 
Um, but I'd like to close out the conversation talking a bit more about the players who are cashing in. Um, you don't have to be a pro necessarily at these mega tournaments to be making money uh, enjoying your favorite video game, Danny. Can you tell us a little bit else uh, about basically the opportunities? If you're a good player and you're interested in getting into this, what is out there uh, for the gamers? Well, you know, the, the best example that I found was uh, with the company Riot Games. Um, that is owned by Tencent Holdings. And they are the sponsors of the League of Legends Championship Series. Now, what they've done is they provide each team uh, with, you know, uh, several players with a stipend. And they require that team to pay each player a minimum of $12,500 for their participation. Now, that might not seem like very much, but that's also the minimum. Um, I was able to find one instance uh, in December 2015, the North American Challenger team uh, that went by the, the name Ember, um, they became the first professional esports team to pay uh, their players as employees rather than as contractors. And they released their players' salary figures. Um, in which case that each of their players received compensation between $70,000 and $92,000 per year. They also provided them with housing, uh, office space, health care. And so there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're the big player in like the Dota League or in Riot Games, you know, you could make millions. But for the average player who's just really good, you can still make, you know, five, six figures just by doing what they love, playing video games. Yeah, it's really uh, just an incredible, uh, the incredible growth in this space. And uh, right now, we're, the thing is, we're still in the early stages. So how everything pans out, you know, we're getting a glimpse of it now with these licensing deals, these partnerships with the professional leagues. But even on the, you know, I guess like the small guy level, if you want to call it that, uh, there's still a lot of opportunity out there. Um, so overall, uh, it's a really cool space. Um, I very much intend to follow it going forward, uh, hopefully with your help, Danny. Um, but otherwise, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again, Will and Tom, for your questions. And Danny, it was great having you on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Fool on. Fool on.